Hi, my name is Kara Frederick from the Center for a New American Securities Technology and National Security Program. We're here to talk about the AI and National Security Report Series that the Center for a New American Security has just launched. In particular, we're going to talk today about the third and final report in our series, Strategic Competition in an Era of Artificial Intelligence. We have here today Paul Shari, Senior Fellow and Director of the Technology and National Security Program here at the Center for a New American Security, and Greg Allen, Adjunct Fellow for the, at the Center for a New American Security. Paul, I want to start with you. This report explains previous industrial revolutions, what caused them, and how they alter the definition of national power. How will the definition of national power change due to the implementation of artificial intelligence in our society? Well, I think we don't know exactly yet how exactly it's going to change, but, but I think we can be confident predicting that um, it will change, and it already is beginning to change, the key elements of power, um, making things like data, um, access to hardware, human capital more important. Um, just like as we saw during the Industrial Revolution, coal and steel production became more important, um, oil becomes very important as a, as a determinant of national power. Now we're seeing these digital elements and elements of data, the things that power machine learning, um, being critical to be able to harness this technology and then give uh, nations and other actors on the global stage, major corporations, non-state groups, um, tools that will make them uh, powerful on the global stage. So can you break down the key elements of AI national power? Sure. Um, I think the first thing to recall is that uh, artificial intelligence is a portfolio technology, not a singular entity. Um, so if you think about nuclear weapons, for instance, uh, that is a technology where you either have it or you don't. Uh, and it matters a great deal for your national security if you have it. And it matters a great deal for your national security if you do not have it. Um, artificial intelligence is not like that. Um, as Paul said, it's more analogous to prior industrial revolutions. The most commonly cited example um, is that of electricity. And if you think, I think electricity is a helpful analogy in this case um, because it, it sort of classifies the portfolio aspect of AI. Um, when electricity was first introduced into the national security domain, it enabled many capabilities, some of which were entirely transformative. Let's think of the radios, applications to warfare and intelligence, and some of which were merely helpful and evolutionary rather than revolutionary. Think of the substitution of electrical detonators for burning lit fuses. So when we think about AI um, in the national security domain, I think it is that enabling portfolio aspect to keep in mind. But it is a portfolio with extraordinary consequence. And so when you think about what does that mean for your national power, what are the sources of strategic advantage, um, I think this is a really important discussion. Uh, Paul, did you want to chime in? Yeah, I mean, I think um, there's right now an interesting place where the U.S. has been a leader in artificial intelligence. Uh, but many countries are catching up. Um, and it's a, it's a pretty democratized space. Um, you know, there are a number of, of leading uh, countries, uh, U.S., China, uh, U.K., Canada, assuming a number of other European countries increasing their investments in AI. Um, and so I think that we're in an interesting place where there is a lot of competition. China has certainly uh, laid down the gauntlet with their national strategy for artificial intelligence, saying their plan is to be the global leader by 2030. Um, and I think it's, it's a place where the U.S. advantage here really cannot be taken for granted. Um, you know, We've lived in an era where for decades the U.S. has been a global technology leader. 
Um, and, you know, that's not a foregone conclusion that that will be the case uh, in the years to come. And Greg, did you want to elaborate more on the state of international competition in AI? Absolutely. I think there's several countries who have identified um, artificial intelligence technology as a key element of future national power. And that's true both on the economic side of national power, um, providing key industries, making lots of money upon which to uh, you know, support your industries that are related to national security, as well as national security and military power um, more generally. Uh, Russia, uh, most notably their president, Vladimir Putin, has said that whoever becomes the leader in artificial intelligence technology will become the ruler of the world, um, which is a rather direct uh, statement of the fact. What's remarkable is that Russia's military community is sort of taking this to heart. Um, they are certainly being the most, most bullish uh, in their public pronouncements about what their uh, autonomous Western weapon systems are in development and how they intend to use them. Um, uh, one Russian ministry report uh, related to their national security sector said that they are uh, forecasting that 30% of their combat power will be robotic in nature by the year 2030. Um, so that, these are very aggressive targets uh, for utilizing AI and uh, advanced robotics in a military context. By the same token, uh, China, as uh, Paul mentioned, their report in their uh, national strategy for artificial intelligence calls for leading the world in AI technology by 2020, uh, 2025 rather, and dominating the world uh, by 2030. Um, those are pretty remarkable goals. And I think if you had talked to people in DC uh, maybe five or 10 years ago, they would have laughed at such targets. Uh, at the time, it was a cliche to say that Chinese technology companies were incapable of innovation. All they could do is copy. You really don't hear that nearly as much anymore. In fact, um, Leading technology companies in the West, such as Facebook and Snapchat, openly admit to copying features um, from China's Tencent and WeChat social media platform. So there is this transition where we are acknowledging um, that Chinese digital technology companies are making legitimate research and development breakthroughs in AI technology. They are far more aggressive uh, in the commercial utilization of AI technology applications. Um, and they are really setting themselves up for a, a, a situation in which that strategy's goals of leading the world um, are credible. And uh, no less an authority than former Google CEO Eric Schmidt said that explicitly, um, that if we do not change United States policy towards AI, if we do not take this significantly more seriously uh, in the government sphere, um, then it is entirely credible uh, that China could be in a position to lead the world in this technology and its national security implications. So there's a lot to unpack there, but I want to get after the civil-military fusion, especially mm -hmm. regarding China. Is this collaboration as effective as it's made out to be? Well, this is one of the big differences between artificial intelligence and prior domains of key military technologies. If you think about the aerospace sector, aircraft, rocketry, um, these were traditionally government-led technologies where either the government was in the driver's seat through its own uh, laboratories and organizations, or um, companies who were incredibly intimate with the government, such as Lockheed Martin or Boeing, um, were in the driver's seat for aerospace technology. When it comes to AI, the leading firms are far more commercial in orientation. Um, in the West, companies like Google, Amazon, uh, Microsoft, etc., and in uh, the East, in China, companies like Tencent, Alibaba, and Baidu. 
What's really remarkable is the difference in intimacy between uh, the West's commercial leading AI companies and those of China. Um, China has a lot more tools with which to incentivize through funding uh, cooperation with the national security community or to just compel cooperation outright. Um, the national intelligence law uh, passed in 2017 gives the Chinese uh, government the authority to compel um, both individuals and corporations to work on national security efforts. Um, there's been a lot of hesitance uh, in the United States in particular um, for companies to work with the national security community, especially um, after the uh, Edward Snowden debacle. And that sort of uh, that relationship remains very tenuous. Uh, the most recent events with Project Maven, uh, an early uh, AI prototyping effort in the Department of Defense upon which Google um, had offered to help and subsequently after it was reported in the media that Google was working on this project uh, decided that they would not renew their contract and that they would uh, significantly restrict um, the types of AI work that they were willing to do in the national security community. That really does give China a significant advantage uh, in utilizing AI in a national security context because they have access to the talent pool of their commercial industries who really are uh, quite substantial and quite hi highly skilled. All right, Greg, since you brought it up, Paul, I want to ask you regarding the Project Maven and the allowing of the contract to collapse by Google, how can the United States compete if there's this ideological reluctance to cooperate with the U.S. government? Yeah, I mean, I think um, part of it's uh, about a reluctance to cooperate with the government and weapons technologies. Part of it's about how these companies see themselves. Um, what you see in the case of Google walking away from Project Maven is Google basically saying, we're not an American company, we're a global multinational. Um, Google's opening up research uh, centers, AI research centers in China, while it's basically saying we're not going to participate in the national defense of the United States. Um, that's, that's a really radical change from how you would think about how American industry thought about itself during the 20th century. Imagining you know, Ford Motor Corporation saying, well, we're not going to you know, be involved in, uh, in, 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 during the Cold War, World War II. So that's, it's, it's an interesting shift. Um, I think it is a big cultural divide between um, AI engineers and Washington. Um, there is, as, as Craig mentioned, a lot of history here. Uh, Snowden, you know, um, prior instance like disagreements between the FBI and Apple over encryption. And, and there's, there's a lot of history here and a lot of distrust. Um, and I think it's really important that there's a deeper dialogue between the AI engineers and the national security community to talk about this technology and how it is used. Um, actually, Google's AI principles that they released um, made a lot of sense. Them basically saying, um, we're not going to be involved in weapons development. Um, that's, that's important. There are lots of uh, uh, companies that, that are going to do that. Um, and we certainly need to be using AI to improve weapons technologies. But I can understand why a commercial company like Google might say, we don't want to be a weapons company. Um, but Maven wasn't doing that at all. It's processing imagery, um, helping people to better understand the battle space and improve situational awareness. Um, and yet Google still walked away from that. And so I think that says that there's a lot of work to be done in really bridging the gap between these communities. So I think implicit in both of your responses is a big human capital question, right? So this is something that comes up in, in every AI conversation, especially about AI progress and the future of AI. Greg, how do you think the United States can cultivate human capital and that AI knowledge and all the aspects of it necessary to compete internationally in this frontier? Sure. And I would start just by highlighting how severe this human capital uh, gap is. Um, 
In the United States, it is entirely routine uh, for a newly minted PhD uh, with the expertise in advanced AI technologies um, to garner $300,000 to $500,000 in annual salary. I mean, that is far above uh, what the United States national security community is really in a position to pay its employees. So it's very difficult to compete for talent uh, when the private sector is able to offer those types of salaries. And if, um, as Project Maven seems to hint at, uh, leading AI commercial companies that are paying those salaries are going to refrain from doing um, national security work to some extent, um, that poses a real challenge uh, to the U.S. national security community and one that has to be addressed. Um, I think the first thing that the Department of Defense needs to do uh, is to create a vibrant uh, startup ecosystem uh, to work with this. I think the example of Palantir is one, uh, a data analytics uh, firm working in the intelligence community on behalf of the intelligence community, um, that is an example that one would uh, really like to be able to replicate uh, with AI technologies. Can we grow innovative companies that are competitive with leading private sector talent um, in the commercial sphere? And can we give these companies a source of revenue? I think what is uh, most often discussed as policy recommendations when it comes to AI is increasing funding for uh, research and development. Um, but what I try to counter with is that we actually do not need any additional research and development breakthroughs um, in order to enable really powerful um, applications of AI in the national security domain. Um, Basic research and development is critical, but we have already made a lot of breakthroughs and we have not fit and even come close to finishing picking the low-hanging fruit uh, that those breakthroughs um, have enabled. And so my point is that we need to be, off, be creating programs uh, that can create attractive revenue opportunities uh, for companies to pursue in the national security market. Um, and I think especially in that is to try and attract uh, new startups. Um, who have access to uh, high-quality human capital, who can pay competitive salaries, um, and it can bring fresh ideas and technical approaches to the national security domain. And then, Paul, do you have any opinions on the human capital question? I know you do. Yeah, I think the main, I mean, the main takeaway there was, uh, yeah, um, getting a PhD in AI would give you like an NFL-level salary. So, um, you know, if you're, if you're competitive for the NFL draft pick, go for it. But if not, hey, maybe... Um, Maybe going back to school and studying AI is a great idea. Um, maybe the podcast will, will spur a couple of folks to think about, about a career change. It's, it's pretty remarkable. Um, that will change over time as more people move into the space. Part of this is about um, the fact that we've seen just really explosive advances in machine learning in just the past couple of years. And so there's gonna be a little bit of time for the talent pipeline to catch up as people begin to respond accordingly. Um, but there is a clear competition for talent. And I wanna think the, one of the major challenges here for the, the national security community is that um, talented engineers are gonna go work in the private sector. There's both a lot more money they can get there and there are a lot of interesting problems. And so um, how does the national security community you know, um, remain competitive? How do they uh, attract people? How do they create interesting problems? And I do think that, that when you look at the objections to um, Maven, which were on sort of ethical grounds, I don't agree with them, but I think it's really incumbent on the national security community to communicate effectively to engineers about how they plan to use this technology. Um, because people want to feel comfortable with what they're building. I do think it is a very positive thing that we're having discussions in the AI research community about how this technology is used and that engineers 
are passionate and interested in how their technology is going to be used out in the real world. That's great, and we need to have more of that. Um, and in the national security space, we need to have that openly and be transparent with people um, and explain the legal and the ethical frameworks that we're using to use this technology. So something you hear a lot, especially as a news item, is about data. So whether we're talking data privacy or data as a solution to all of our problems, data is at the forefront of most people in the technology space's minds. So is data the new oil in terms of a strategic resource? Why or why not? How important is data when it comes to all of this in a strategic sense? I think there's a, a great level of importance that is rightly placed on data. Um, the oil analogy is imperfect, though. Um, oil, you, you tend to have high-grade uh, crude oil and low-grade crude oil. But other than that, uh, most oil is alike. Uh, in terms of data, um, what your specific data is on matters a great deal. Uh, you cannot use healthcare records data in order to develop an autonomous car. Um, so while data is critical and having a strategy for acquiring data is critical, um, it is not quite a, it's not quite oil in the, in the sense that uh, all of it is alike. Um, you can develop niche advantages um, in data, and that's an important part of thinking through strategic competitions, is all of the different domains of the applications of AI and how you're going to have an edge or a strategy for each of them. Yeah, sort of the data is the new oil is one of those things that's, that's a cliche now that the first time that somebody said it, you're like, oh, it's kind of clever and interesting. And now it's been repeated enough that um, it's like, well, it's not, I mean, it's not, we've heard it. And it, and it isn't, it isn't, of course, obviously a perfect analogy. Um, I think one of the really interesting things about data is that you can have very subtle differences between the training data that you use to train an algorithm and then the real world that it interacts with that can lead to profound differences in behavior, um, a shift in the distribution of the data. And so it's not only the case that um, it's not fungible like well across a variety of different applications. Um, you have to have the right data for the right thing. But even a minor shift in um, the setting could make a big difference. Um, and so it's really you know protecting data, data integrity, um, making sure that you have the right data for the right job um, is really critical. I think what the oil analogy gets correct um, is the scale of the importance, right? Um, I think every country on earth has an energy strategy, and rightly so. Uh, if you don't have one, tends, things tend to go quite badly for you. Um, and I think that is essentially true about data in the future with artificial intelligence. So all that being said, how do you both think the United States is faring vis-a-vis -vis our competitors in this era of strategic competition with regard to AI? I mean, I think that we're in a good place at the moment in terms of the where the energy out of the commercial space in the United States has brought the, the country as a whole, um, in terms of talent and and, um, and energy and dynamism here in the United States. Um, where I think we really are behind on is the level of government um, interest and focus and attention on the problem. There's a place where we are woefully behind China. Um, they have a national strategy they released uh, last year. They are now implementing that strategy. They're uh, making major investments. They are aggressively recruiting human capital. And to be frank, our government is pretty out to lunch on the problem. Um, you see some energy in, in DOD. DOD seems fairly seized of it, creating a new joint artificial intelligence center. Um, I think you see a good amount of energy on the Hill from the House and Senate Armed Services Committee. There's a, um, some, some legislation uh, that's been drafted uh, looking at creating a new national commission on AI. Um, the White House has made some efforts, but I think that they're, they're fairly meager um, compared to what we really need to do. We need to have a national strategy. We need to implement it, not just a piece of paper. We need to have a robust public-private partnership. 
uh, renewed R&D, a, uh, a strategy for STEM education, for immigration. Certainly this administration's immigration policy is actively harmful um, in pushing away top tier talent from the rest of the world. Um, and we need to be thinking about how to protect critical industries here in the US, things like um, CFIUS reform um, to protect uh, industries where China uh, or other countries might be trying to, to invest in companies to gain an, an advantage. Yeah, I think in, in my view, it, it would be um, it would be wrong to ignore the trend lines. It is clearly the case that the United States is the global leader in artificial intelligence technology. It is also clearly the case that the US AI industry is advancing rapidly. Um, but the other important thing to consider is that China's AI industry is advancing far, far more rapidly. Um, and, and that is what is important to remember. I, every every uh, so often I encounter someone who says, well, look how much progress the United States has made. And I would respond, you know, China's technology industry 10 years ago was a joke. And now they are in a position where they are a peer competitor. Um, we are not running that fast. And so it is not enough to say that we are doing a lot. The question is, are we doing enough for what the scale of the challenge that we are facing is? Um, and I think that is especially true when you think about artificial intelligence as a disruptive technology in the true sense. Um, disruptive technology uh, and disruptive innovation um, has become such a buzzword uh, that it's, it's lost its original meaning. But it actually does have a formal uh, definition and it is a formal theory that makes formal predictions um, in the business competitive strategy uh, academic literature. Um, and it is a discussion of in what types of technology competitions are incumbents or market leaders uh, likely to win and in what types of technology competitions are market leaders and incumbents likely to lose. And I think what we were discussing earlier about artificial intelligence, um, the fact that it enables capabilities uh, at a much cheaper price point and available to a much more diverse set of actors. Um, and that it uh, tends to take the, your existing sources of advantage and make them increasingly obsolete. Those are all the hallmarks of a disruptive innovation type scenario. It is a situation in which the market leader, um, actually the sources of their advantage in the short term are actually long-term disadvantages. And that is why I believe the response that is called for is just so much greater uh, than the energy that I have seen um, coming out of the United States government so far. And the last thing I would point on, the last point I would like to make on this is I think there's an excessive optimism uh, that the U.S. private sector alone can carry the burden. Um, the U.S. private sector is extraordinary. And in the case of uh, the Internet, it was clearly the case that once the government got the ball rolling with early research and development um, activity, the private sector really could run with it and lead the world. But when it comes to AI technology, um, it is clearly the case to me that uh, funding in the U.S. private sector is going to be dwarfed by the combination of Chinese funding uh, in the public and private sector. And so if the United States government um, is not willing to, to step up and do what it takes to sustain leadership in this area, then the expected outcome should be that we fall behind. So before we close out, I want to get both of your final recommendations to ensure that the United States remain or maintains its strategic edge in this competition. Paul, start with you. 
You know, we, we've um, had a lot of debates here, and the term has come up about AI as sort of being analogous to the to the space race. Um, like anything, like the you know sort of data is the new oil. It's an imperfect analogy. There are ways in which uh, AI competition is similar and and and, and dissimilar from the space race. But I think it is a valuable mental frame for thinking about the scale of competition um, and and the, the the sort of the essence of it as a national level technology competition in gaining an edge in a critical technology area that is multiple spin-off effects um, throughout society um, in, in a variety of different applications. In some ways, AI is much, much more fundamental in that the um, it's much more of a general purpose enabling technology that while space has a lot of applications, um, when you think about AI is more analogous to electricity, their internal combustion engine, the wide applications across industries are probably even, even much more profound. Um, and when you think about the level of national effort that the U.S. invested in the space race, and that's your mental paradigm, we are really out of touch with reality with AI. Um, we created NASA. We invested a tremendous amount of money with presidential level leadership in the space race. Um, and, and, you know, that suggests that we've really got to step up our game big time uh, in the AI sphere. Greg, any final recommendations? Yeah, I would, I would encourage the United States government to think long term about what the sources of its competitive advantage are going to be. Um, I was very disappointed uh, in, in some senses in the most recent uh, defense budgets because they tended to spend uh, a great amount more money on systems that had already been invented. Uh, and if you look to the future with artificial intelligence, um, this really to me seems like a time when we should be asking ourselves, will we continue to perform the missions that we perform today using the same approaches that we use today? And my great fear um, is that we are going to be procuring a lot of military systems that in the future we will have to repair and sustain, and that those costs will be the ball and chain uh, that drag us down from modernizing in the way that we need to with AI. Um, you could argue, and I think, I think this is frankly fair to say, um, that the United States is currently finding a way to spend more on defense while making itself weaker. And that is really quite unfortunate. Um, and responding then to that is going to, have, is going to require um, an honest assessment of the potential of AI and how it's going to shape the force of the future and what we need to be doing now given that. You know, just to, to double down on that, there's no question that our, our defense budget is driven predominantly by inertia rather than strategy. And, and we're often very slow to catch up to some of these technologies. Despite the fact that the U.S. is a, is a major technology leader in inventing things, translating that into the program of record, into force structure, um, can, can have a long, very long time delays. Um, but there's almost a more fundamental problem, which is that our metrics for thinking about military power all focus on physical hardware. When you look at the military services and how they think about military power, they measure themselves in, for the Army, number of people, for the Navy, number of ships, and for the Air Force, number of combat-coded aircraft. And, and, you know, those are valuable metrics, but they're one that makes sense in an industrial age. They don't make sense in a digital age or an age powered by AI and machine learning. Instead, what's in those systems is what matters far more. Um, what those soldiers are carrying, what information they have about the battle space, uh, what missiles and sensors we have on our ships and aircraft and submarines. Now, the services know this. Even as we have reduced quantities um, of these assets over the years, we have made them much more capable. Um, but 
we still think about the measurements of power that way. When we write strategy documents, report the budget, report sort of top-level major muscle movements of force structure uh, to Congress and the White House, we still talk about these sort of you know, number of supercarrier battle groups and number of destroyers, and those aren't really the metrics that matter. And so I think there is a fundamental challenge underway, and I, I admit I do not have the answer here, but an important challenge for defense analysts um, to begin thinking about what are the right ways to measure this power? How should we be thinking about measuring um, whether we're ahead and whether we're competing in the right space? Well, I hope those defense analysts are paying attention to this podcast today. So thank you both for coming in. And once again, you can check out all of our AI content, including this podcast and YouTube playlists, as well as all of our AI reports at www.cnas.org. Thank you again.